those people who are back with us and people who are with us uh, as visitors and for the first time. We are kicking off a new series this morning. I prefer the graphics that someone else prepared to the ones that I prepared for this morning, but the message is the same. Um, Some of you will know from back in the autumn that through this year we've been using a phrase, open heaven, open lives. You may or may not have connected that with what Al said about testimonies at the start of the meeting, that we're loving hearing testimony of the reality of heaven being open to us and the great things that happen when God gives us the grace to live openly before other people. At this term, we're we're not moving away from open heaven and open lives, but we do want to have more of a focus on what God is doing in our lives and the grace that he gives us that enables us to be open. And through this term, we're going to take this title, Open Heaven, Changing Lives. We're going to look at it in all kinds of different ways. And for the large part, that's going to focus on prayer, in which we speak to God through that open door into heaven and our prayers go up before him like incense. And uh, we're going to be talking as well about discipleship, that is how it is that we cooperate with God in our lives being changed. So all kinds of ways of looking at this, quite a bit about prayer and quite a bit about discipleship. But this morning, um, I'm slightly intimidated by the passage of scripture to which I was led this morning. We're going to open the book of Revelation and going to read a bit from chapter 4 and then also from chapter 5. So if you have a Bible, please do turn there and uh, here we go. Just going to read the first couple of verses of chapter 4. Our focus is going to be on what God says to us in, as recorded in chapter 5. Uh, the Apostle John, having already begun an encounter with God, with Christ through the Holy Spirit, Uh, At the beginning of chapter 4, we see his encounter going onwards and upwards to a whole other level. It says, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice that I'd first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once... I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. The chapter goes on to describe the one sitting on it, glorious, and living creatures in heaven worshipping this one on the throne. And elders who represent God's people from old and new covenants throwing down their crowns in worship of this wonderful, wonderful God on the throne. At the end of chapter 4, it says, they, threw, they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord our God. You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. And then... I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And if we read, we were to read on through the chapters of Revelation, we would discover that this scroll has written on it revelation, uh, the, the reality of what will happen through human history. Where at the beginning of chapter 4, the voice that John heard said, Come up here, I will show you what must take place after this. This revelation of what would take place after this. This explanation of human history is what's on this scroll. All sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy? To break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And uh, 
that seems like a long way away, do, do we not weep when life makes no sense? And we call out to God for understanding. And what is the purpose? What is happening, not just in human history, but in my history, in my life story? I do not understand. And there is no one explaining it to me. Do we not weep? John wept and wept. Because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. And then one of the elders said to me, he's being pastoral, as elders should be, do not weep. Do not weep. See, the lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. And he had seven horns, symbols of strength, and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. It's not that there's seven holy spirits, but it's a use of numbers to say, like, there's just an abundance and perfection in the Holy Spirit of God. And this lamb came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they sang, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Wow. Just amazing. A door is standing open in heaven. And the Apostle John saw through that door, what did he see? And what do we see that's written down for us? Well, we see angels and elders. And I skipped over in chapter 4, rainbows. And to come, we have people from every tribe and nation. Amazing things, angels and people and but the column inches in our Bible, the, the airspace, if you like, the focus of this is, is on none of those things. It lies elsewhere. The column inches, the focus, are on God himself. In chapter 4, we have one seated on the throne. We, it's pretty much the most that's said about God in that chapter is that he's seated on the throne. And all of the glory that goes along that. But in chapter 5, and the reason we read more from chapter 5, is that in chapter 5, we see further in to the reality of God in heaven. Because in chapter 5, we find Jesus here doing what he did on earth, in heaven. That is, he came to earth to make the Father known. He came to earth to show us what the Father is really like. In chapter 4, we have uh, 
something said about this God on the throne, but we're left wanting to know more, and it comes in chapter 5 in the person of Jesus, as Jesus shows us what God is like. There's this scroll that defines history, a scroll that makes sense of the whole of life. And it's not that there was no one who could understand it, though you might imagine there might be no one that could understand everything about history and life and its meaning. It's not even that there was no one who could understand it. There was no one found who was worthy to open it. And then we're drawn further in again, and we see Jesus. We see Jesus described in two ways, as the lion and the lamb. And he is worthy to open the scroll. Praise God. You know, you can't really begin to understand the book of Revelation without searching the Old Testament. Because again and again, the language, the imagery that's used in the book of Revelation is drawn from the Hebrew scriptures. It quotes the Hebrew scriptures. It says here, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, if you go back into the Old Testament to understand what does it mean that God is a lion? What does that mean? If you read the Old Testament, you find that for the Israelites, uh, lions represented what they always represent to farmers. Death and destruction. The lion was understood uh, sometimes a little bit of a mythical creature almost, because when it roared, you could hear it, and you heard it a lot more than you saw it. But lions were living in the land, in amongst the farmland. And they were understood to be a power, unstoppable, irresistible strength. When a, again and again in the Old Testament, we find that the lion is described as like, if the lion's after you, man, that is it. There is, if the lion determines something, then, then it's done. Just, you have no chance. And then there's one place in particular where the lion is linked with the tribe of Judah. And it's in Genesis chapter 49, as Jacob is blessing his 12 sons. And when he comes to Judah, one of his 12 sons, he says this, You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? You know, the lionesses do most of the hunting in most prides of lions. Young lions who haven't yet got a pride of lionesses have to hunt for themselves. But, by, sorry, distraction for the biologist in me. I'm sorry. <laughs> You didn't need to know that. Um, You do need to know that lions are fierce and their strength is irresistible. And it says this in verse 10, uh, this continuing blessing from Jacob, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come. And the obedience of the nations shall be his. There's a blessing prayed over Judah that turns out to be a prophecy that amongst the tribes of Israel, Judah will rule and reign and be king and be strong like a lion. And that's how it will remain until the one who is really king, the one to whom the scepter belongs shall come. And then that's Jesus who inherits the title of Lion of the tribe of Judah. And it says here that he will reign and the obedience of the nations shall be his. 
So the king of heaven, it turns out, is a lion. The power of the king of heaven cannot be stopped. His will cannot be prevented. You see, the king is a victor. He triumphs. Victors are kings. Kings are victors. A king who cannot win victories is not king for long. He won't stay in charge if he can't win, triumph, and be victorious. Christ is king, and Christ is victorious. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Nothing stopped Jesus from doing the will of the Father. Nothing got in the way of him doing what was right. He cast out spirits that were opposed to God. And he cleansed the temple. He exposed hypocrites. He raised the dead. Uh, All of this is why we have something, hopefully, in our thinking called kingdom theology. I don't know what that phrase means to everyone, but what it hopefully means, uh, get hold of this, is that God is king and he reigns and our lives are lived out in the framework of his kingship. And so it's not that this having a kingdom theology sometimes has meant for people that we value what God is doing in the world beyond the church. It's not all just about the church. It's about the kingdom. So we don't need to get entirely caught up in church life. God's at work in the world. What we do with our jobs and what we do uh, beyond church activity really, really matters. So that's, that's true, but it's not the whole story because a king is a victor. And so it's not just about placing value on what goes on outside the church. It's seeing the victory of God in every aspect of life. Knowing that this king, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, with irresistible strength, is at work in the world. It's not just a comfort to us. It's not just saying that what we do in the whole of life matters, but we expect to see the victory of God in all of life. It's about effective, positive change. Slavery repealed. Sickness healed. Lies exposed. Confusion dispelled. Friendships restored. You know, people being given second chances and then miracle of miracles taking them. Wiping away every tear. Victory over every kind of evil. The obedience of the nations shall be his. The obedience of the nations. And then when you're starting to get excited, just when you're starting to get excited about the fact that the king of heaven is a lion, uh, there's a surprise in store. Because it turns out that this lion is actually a lamb. And uh, we, in seeing that Christ is a lamb, we're going, we're going further up and we're going further in to the reality of God in heaven. You see, the lamb is even better than the lion. It's the same person. The fact that he's the lamb is even better than that he's a lion. And we know that from verse 9 in chapter 5. Why is it that this Jesus is worthy to open the scroll? Is it because he's powerful? Is it because he's irresistible? No. It says, you are worthy because you were slain. Because you were slain. You know, um, Jesus came to claim victory over evil. But not only the the evil that's out there in the world, he came to free us from the evil that lives in us. And that evil, that sinful nature in us, it's so entangled with our very soul that it cannot be 
defeated, it cannot be washed away except by our death. This sin that's in us, it's not like a virus that's infected us that we could take some drug to cleanse from our system. It's not that. It's rather a cancer. It's a mutation of the human nature that we were intended to have and that God gave to humanity at creation. It's a mutation of that nature that is like a cancer. And that mutation has occurred in every part of us, body, mind, and soul. It's so deeply located in human nature that it cannot be separated out. And that means that our sinfulness cannot be healed. It has to be destroyed. Our sinfulness has somehow to be destroyed. And so this makes us a bit less enthusiastic about cheering the victorious death-dealing lion of heaven. You cheer him a bit less enthusiastically when his destroying power is focused on us. When we are in his line of sight, it's rather less exciting to know that God is a lion. It's wonderful to know that he is the lamb. Back to the Old Testament, to understand what it means that God is a lamb. The most frequent use of the, uh, the lamb in the Old Testament was their important part in the life of the temple, where lambs were slain, offered, uh, frequently as sin offerings. That is something that was done to restore people's friendship with God, to restore people's relationship with God. And then there's another passage that is really, really helpful, Isaiah 53, where it talks at length about a slain lamb in a way that you you know it's about Jesus. It's a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about the Messiah who was to come. It says in Isaiah 53, he, they didn't, Isaiah didn't know this at the time. It turned out to be Jesus of Nazareth he was talking about, who was man and God. He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds were healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he'd done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, these two aspects of the, the lamb in the Old Testament are brought together. That first aspect of a lamb being offered in sacrifice to restore relationship with God, and a lamb that has somehow taken on the filth of sin and slaughtered, which is very different, by the way, to the lamb offered in the temple. It's two different images. The lamb in the temple has to be clean and pure and spotless and without blemish. And then there's this whole other thing that's here in Isaiah 53 of a lamb that has been made dirty, bearing iniquity, and is slaughtered. Both both are lambs that are slaughtered, but they're different pictures. One's a bit more like the scapegoat 
that has sin placed upon it and sent off into the desert. One is a pure, spotless, clean lamb that's offered as a righteous sacrifice. But in fact, Jesus, in his death on the cross, is both of this marvelous thing that he's done for us. He's all of that and more if we took longer to look at it. In Romans 8, chapter 3, it says this, that God sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful humanity, that is, with all of the muck attached that wasn't his, it was attached to him, sent Jesus in the likeness of sinful humanity and as a sin offering. Two kinds of pictures of the lamb. By sending Jesus in the likeness of sinful humanity and as a sin offering, he destroyed humanity's sin. That destruction that needed to take place has because of what Jesus did. He took on our sin, and the Lion of Heaven allowed himself to die like a lamb in order that sin would be destroyed without us being harmed. It's gone. What's my next picture? Oh, here we go. This is a picture um, of some drugs being destroyed that collected up by the uh, authorities in Peru, of all places, and being thrown into a furnace to be destroyed. This is a helpful picture for us. There's no lion or lamb in it. But if you were to ask the question, where is Jesus in this picture? Uh, Jesus carried our sin and was destroyed so that our sin might be destroyed. So if you can see Jesus anywhere in this picture, he's, he's the bag thrown into the furnace, carrying the iniquity, willing to be destroyed in order that we might be free. It's a lot better that Jesus is the lamb than that he is simply the lion. This is our Jesus The one who commands obedience, who will have the obedience of the nations, the one who commands obedience is himself obedient to death. Uh, He conquers through sacrifice. And this is reality. This window onto heaven which is somehow even more real than the world in which we live. It's 3D to our 2D. It's more substantial. It's where everything came from, the throne of God. This defines our reality. Uh, Materialism says that it's the physical world that's truly real, and the spiritual stuff is somehow fluffy or emotional or maybe even not real. Uh, Academics, in their glorious wisdom and knowledge, often say that reality is defined by our language. Uh, Too often, we let our view of reality be defined by our emotions. But here's reality. Here's reality that God himself is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. This is the most important thing around which everything else finds its place and makes sense. So what? What what does that mean for 2017? We stand near the beginning of a new year. So so what? What? How does that make a difference to anything? Well, we're given a pointer further on in chapter 5. I did read it, where it says in verse 10, as part of the praise that's offered to the Lamb, you have made them, that is, God's people from every tribe and language and people and nation, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. So we could 
perhaps put it like this. What does it mean to be kings and priests? It means that we are victors, but who connect people to God? That is the function of a priest. Priests stand between ordinary people and God and make that connection for people who don't otherwise know how to make it. And when we become children of God, we become priests, not only having access to him for ourselves, but being given what the New Testament describes elsewhere as a ministry of reconciliation, that is, the ability to enable others to connect with God too. We enjoy God's victory in our lives as kings. And we enjoy the privilege of being priests who can connect people to God, kings and priests, victors who connect people to God. How does that work? Well, we have to jump on a little bit in the book of Revelation to start to see some answers to that in the book. But it's there in, uh, we've got this in Revelation 12 and verse 11. Um, it speaks of how God's people have overcome uh, the enemy. That is, that it, Satan here is a dragon in chapter 12. It says this, They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. By the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So there's something about what God has done that flows into our lives. And by that grace, we live and it has an impact on others around us and by the word of our testimony. Now, if we were to read further through the book of Revelation, we'd need to add another thing, which is to do with faithful perseverance, just sticking at the Christian life in the face of all manner of temptations and oppressions and all the rest of it. That's how we get to be victorious by the blood of Jesus, by sticking at things, by the word of our testimony. So I want to try and make this a little bit more simple. This is something I've used loads of times, and some of you are like, yeah, I know about this now. I've found this helpful. This is a fire triangle. This is a little way of saying, if you get all of these three things together, there's fire. You need heat and fuel, oxygen, and a fire takes off. Well, uh, that's a natural fire triangle, there's a kind of heavenly fire triangle that I want to suggest to you, which is that amazing things also happen in our living out being kings and priests when three other things come together. Because priests connect people to God. So that means being close to God and close to people. Then we can be a point of connection between God and people. So real relationship with God real relationship with other people. And then this thing about the word of our testimony, there is something about clear communication and speaking a word that makes a difference in other people's lives, that brings, God has chosen that he will make himself known through his word. And so when we speak his word, he, he comes close and chooses that way of forming connection with people. Um, you may have noticed on the little card that was on the chair saying what's coming up for the term that in a few weeks' time we'll be celebrating our church anniversary, uh, which is sometime in February. I was going to do it. Who's younger and who's older than the church? It's probably about 50-50, I don't know. Um, it, we're 32 years old as a church this year. 32 years old. Some of you are just on the money there and are 32, I'm sure. Um, it will be a prompt for us next month to look back and look forward as you know, milestones cause you to do. Looking back, not quite that far, but over the last five or more years, uh, one of the things that we have sought to do as a church is to find patterns of community that are flexible and inclusive so that for all of us, church life wouldn't draw us away from those who don't yet believe, 
but instead enable us together as a community to be a place of welcome. That has been, in terms of this, a sustained focus on living in a way that is close to people as, as church community together. We've sought to do that. It sometimes worked. It's been a challenge. We've had a sustained focus on that. As I look back on the last year, 2016, I believe that God very graciously came close to us in a new way. I've spoken to quite a few people who've said, something has shifted for us as a church. Um, Something like 15 months ago, we were describing a sense of heaviness in our Sunday gatherings, which is not there in the same way. We struggled to find words for it, but it was almost like a sense of God's distance from us. And I've spoken to lots of people who think that it's been amazing. In 2016, that changed. And there's a closeness that we're enjoying. It's wonderful. God loves to do that. Um, I have a growing conviction that this year we are now in, 2017, is going to be a year when we see a clear victory in the last of these three things, where we see significant change in our clarity and confidence of communication. Uh, We had some uh, words, uh, some encouraging words brought earlier in the meeting about um, really lining up with you, being open to what God's saying, listening and obeying. And uh, Joe's helpful picture from her car about a reality changing and the question of whether our mindset would update to fit in with the new reality. On Tuesday evening, just gone, uh, Bev and I spoke on Skype to John and Nom Bilson. Not all of you will know who they are. They were a very much valued part of the church here for a number of years. They led our student ministry. Um, and then eight years ago now, moved to Paris to plant a church there. Um, after years of both building community and seeking God in Paris, by the middle of last year, they were frustrated Their church um, had grown in number, um, but then declined, and they were less than 20 people after eight years in Paris, and somewhat frustrated, and not seeing people come to Christ. They could have built a church of, I believe, hundreds if they'd allowed themselves to go a different route. Uh, John, as many of you will know, is a gifted worship leader. If they'd hired a big hall and put him on stage and seen who would come, they'd have had a crowd. But they'd have all been church hopping, you know, looking for the latest thing, already Christians. And there wouldn't have been a lot of social transformation or new birth, really. So they've set themselves to build church by seeing people born again, only they've not seen many people born again. This sounds depressing. They were down. Last Tuesday, we spoke to them. They've led six people to the Lord in the last couple of months. And there's a backstory to that. And the backstory is to do with something that most of you will now have heard of, which is called the turning. The the turning. So I'll explain what that is for those who are unaware. Last summer, something happened in Reading, in Berkshire, (laughs) of all places. And uh, there, there was a church there which had a go at a new pattern of witness, which is what testimony is, isn't it? The word of their testimony, the word is witness. And what they did was they spent a couple of hours of an evening worshipping God and allowing uh, their relationship with him to be renewed and to remember properly in their experience all of who God is and to allow the Holy Spirit to minister to them. A couple of hours And then the next day went out, out onto the streets, and spent just one hour uh, seeking to share the gospel with people that they'd not met before on the streets. And their expectation was that maybe after a couple of weeks of doing that, they might have as many as, say, 10 people who really had prayed that, understood what it meant, and were seeking to follow Jesus. And this was people taking their annual leave 
in order to be available in the daytimes. It's a massive commitment from the church to give themselves to this. Um, They were surprised by what happened when 80 people prayed a prayer of commitment to Christ on the first day. I understand the first day meant in an hour. It's a surprise to them. Um, (laughs) Yinka, who's the pastor there, says, you know, when he heard the number, his thoughts were were really all around, is that true? And, oh, my goodness, what on earth are we going to do? After two weeks, they saw so much going on, they thought they ought to keep going. They did this for four weeks. And at the end of four weeks, they had roughly 2,000 people who'd prayed a prayer to repent of their sins and invite Christ into their life. Um, Something like 70% of whom had given follow-up details, and a good proportion of those have met up with someone from the church to talk further, to learn more, and to go on as a disciple with Christ. Um, When we first heard about it, my reactions were probably not even as good as Yinka's. I didn't know who these people were, and I thought, yeah, I I doubt that's true. It was John that first told me about it via the wonders of the internet. And um, the fact of the matter is, there are huge numbers of people in Reading who have prayed a prayer of salvation. They, They have. And it's, and it's a meaningful thing for a great number of them. And where I've got to is, is this, is that there are some questions. You, if you look into quite what's going on, you will have some questions, undoubtedly. Where I've got to is this. I like their way of doing it better than I like my way of not doing it. <laughs> and uh, they've been to a few other places. Southampton, they were there for... Church in Southampton, uh, 11 days, 516 people prayed in the same way. Uh, Leicester, one day less, a few people more. Uh, it's not competitive, I'm sure, but, um, but Lille wins, doesn't it? Ruth was right at the heart of August. Who else went to Lille? Who else go to Lille? A few people went to Lille. This is what was transforming for John and Nom. Actually, they went up to Lille each for a day or two and joined in. Themselves saw nothing good really happen on the streets of Lille and had to face up to that kind of character thing that goes, well, Lord, why is everyone else seeing cool things happen? I'm not, do you not love me, Lord? What have I done wrong? Is there hidden sin in my life? You know, all of that stuff is going on. But they didn't have a great personal experience in Lille. But what happened was that they were... In they, they had the opportunity to actually speak the gospel to people and find that people would actually listen. And that when you said to people, well then, in the light of that, would you like to give your life to Jesus? They were not hounded out of the city with stick stones and kind of, you know, bulldogs or something. It was all right. And they were saying to us on Tuesday, having gone back home, people with whom they are friends and who know about their Christian faith, they've realized that they can say, do you know what, would it, you know, we've talked now and again about spiritual things, would it be right if I just explained to you like, how the Christian thing works? I think that would probably be quite good for our friendship for you to understand. Is that all right? Go, oh, yeah, of course it is. And then having that, so, okay, so that's the thing. Would you like to give your life to Jesus? And people can, people can say no, and that's fine, but they've had half a dozen people say yes. And the funny thing is, those people were for some time ready to respond to the gospel, for some time in close connection and friendship with people who were themselves close to God, and that many of us would look at and say they are really excellent spiritual leaders. Like, if you wanted to introduce your family and friends to anyone in the hope that they might move on spiritually, you'd think, well, if we could spend an evening or two with John and Nom, that's bound to work. And yet these were people who'd been having that experience. There was something about confidence in communication that was kicked off. Other stories from Lille include um, some Satanists who gave their lives to the Lord on the street. That's good, isn't it? That's like... (laughs) That's a proper turnaround, that is. Um, uh, 
on a couple of separate occasions, people falling to the ground at the mere mention of the gospel. As soon as someone said, can I tell you, God loves you and he has a plan for your life. People falling over under the power of the Spirit. That's good. (laughs) I have reason to believe that 2017 would be a year in which our confidence in the gospel could be radically altered. People that we know and love, and even a few people already in our congregation, Simon Jackman, <laughs> having, have been transformed by participating in a new thing that God's doing. So I think it's clear God is doing a new thing. The question, coming back to the picture that Joseph helpfully gave us, is, Is our mindset going to catch up? Or will we continue to live with our existing mindset, though reality is now different? There's there's the question. Um, So, uh, just checking that I haven't missed anything else I need to say. This is the last thing I need to say, is we're doing it. Um, So, the first week of May... We will have some people from Reading come and join us. And there will be the opportunity for us all to to join in with a pattern of worshipping God and sharing him uh, in a way that, as I said, you might have questions about whether this is the best way of doing it, but I'm standing by my, this is better than not doing it. And uh, if anyone here feels that they've got a better way of us learning to be confident in speaking the gospel. I'd love to hear it, and I'll be more believing if you've also got a few thousand people that have responded to it. Um, Which you might do. Maybe someone's sitting on some hidden treasure and has just been very coy about saying all of that. Um, This is the opportunity that is going to be available to us. Al said earlier that he, he was going to give everybody one moment uh, to get their, their diary out, and that was for the 26th of January when we have a church family meeting. But we won't only be talking about money, by the way, in case just possibly you misunderstood the mention of money as it's a meeting all about money. It's not. There are other things to, to look at as well. Al didn't say it was all about money, but I know how sometimes people hear that. Um, but here's something else to, to, to look at putting in your diary. What we will be doing on uh, the Sunday, the 30th of April, is gathering here to worship. And then for those who are able, and it might involve a little bit of annual leave here and there, we will be going into the center of Oxford and uh, doing the thing, talking to people and seeing what God does. And we'll be doing that night and day and night and day and night and day and night and day for the week. We will be expecting a momentum to build uh, the, expe- the experience of other locations who've done this, there's a growing number of places who have, is that kind of really enthusiastic people join in at the beginning of the week, and by the end of the week, people are wondering if they can get annual leave at really short notice to join in. So I'm just giving you a heads up on that. Um, Bev and I have talked about this a fair bit, and we're crystal clear that we don't want to do this. Uh, that's how it is but we are confident that God is leading us and uh, I learned from Roger Cole who's now that lives in Henley years ago to pray on a regular basis uh, Lord would you cross my will in order that yours would be done because it's not the case that my will lines up with God's at every point So for God's will really to be done, we need to pray like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. It's one of those moments. I suspect that quite a few people are feeling similarly, like, is this time to jump ship and find an easier church? (laughs) I would be if I were you. So... No, no. (laughs) Our God is a lion. 
There's a lot of people don't know that and need to see his victory. Our God is a lamb who gave himself for them, and they don't know. There's quite a lot of people that are delighted to hear that, and we could find them. Um, We've been led to expect that on doing this here in Oxford, there will be probably some hundreds of people from other churches in the city that join in with us, wishing that their church was doing what we'll do. I've spoken to some other church leaders in the city, and they're not up for joining in. But the consistent experience in other cities is that church members will be. And we can expect people to join in with us from other churches as we set a lead. So um, maybe there'll be some jumping the other way. I don't know how all that will work out. But um, we're going to sing. That's what we're going to do. Now, I've been too somber at the end there, haven't I? I have. Um, yeah, Ruth, Ruth, you come and say something. That would be really good. We need a microphone. Um, yeah. I, so as Steve said, I helped organize the turning in deal. And Steve's Steve saying he and Bev didn't want to do it. I really did not want to do it. I thought, I, I, my reaction was worse than even Steve's. It was... Yeah, right. <laughs> Who are these people? Do they really think this works? And even if it did work in the UK, no way. France, no. Come on. And it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. Um, <laughs> I was in tears by the end of it. Um, we, saw, you know, we saw not only people responding in the streets, we saw the lives of Christ, uh, French Christians changed. We saw churches who thought that the that working together meant pastors meeting up once every three months for a coffee we, you know, was unity. Now working together in order to reach their, their region, their city, we've seen this continue. It's, it is absolutely incredible. And I've come back, I, I found myself suddenly learning to worship well. I've always been a, you know, a Bible reader, love Bible reading. Worship, nah. <laughs> I love it now. I, you know, it's completely changed me. It's changed how I see people. And it's just, it, you know, it's just absolutely amazing. So if you can take the time off to come and join in with this, you will be changed. You will see your family changed. And you will see your friends and your city changed. It's a promise. Yeah, there we go. I believe that. I believe that. And uh, there's an invitation and an opportunity. It's not a requirement, but uh, it's an invitation and an opportunity. And my concern is that people who don't join in will end up feeling that they've missed out rather than anything else. So and we're going to sing about our God, aren't we? Because Ruth loves worship. (laughs) And I know she's not alone. So let's worship God together as we close.